Today's episode, Jack Jacobs, Colonel U.S. Army, retired, and his Vietnam War Medal of Honor. Hello, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar and located at warscholar.org. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Jack Jacobs, Colonel U.S. Army Retired, Medal of Honor recipient, and also author of the book, If Not Now, When, as far as, uh, as well as other books. Thank you for speaking with me. Oh, my great pleasure. So first, uh, let's start. Obviously, the, you wrote the book, you co-wrote the book um, based on uh, what you went through. Um, can you tell me about your, your Army service, um, how you got in, what motivated you to join? Well, I'm a little bit older. I was born at the end of the Second World War. My father uh, had been drafted into the United States Army and fought in New Guinea and the Philippines and the South Pacific during the war. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was born while he was gone. He had never seen me until he came home and got demobilized. And I thought then and when I was going through college, and I still think today that everybody who's lucky enough to live in a free country owes it something in the form of service. And so I was going to do my bit. Uh, I went to college and I enrolled in ROTC, A, because if I was going to serve, I thought I might as well serve as an officer, even though they didn't make a whole lot. Made $222.10 a month as a lieutenant. Mm-hmm. We needed a lot of money back in those days. And I had a wife and two children to support. But also um, uh, because I wanted to serve and just do what I needed to do and then leave. I was going to serve. For, I had a three-year obligation because I'd gone through ROTC and was an officer. Mm-hmm. I was going to serve my three years and get out. But I stayed. And I stayed because I really loved the people and I didn't want to leave them. And today when people ask me, what do you miss most about the Army? I've been retired from the Army for 30 years. Mm-hmm. What do I miss most about the Army? I, I tell them truthfully, it's the people. I love being around people who have served or who are serving. And uh, I retired reluctantly to go pursue another career, but I still hang around uh, people who are serving and people who are served, and I feel lots better when I do. Mm-hmm. And what was your um, what, MOS? Is that the proper? Yeah, I was an, I was an 11B. I was just a plain infantry officer. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, an airborne infantry officer. I, I, I went airborne because you uh, you got paid an extra $110 a month to jump out of airplanes. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to be a CPA to figure out that that's a 50% increase in salary if you're only making 222 <laughs> And furthermore, it, it's it's even more attractive when you recognize the fact that gravity does all the work. But you don't have to. <laughs> we went through three weeks of training to learn how to exit the aircraft properly and land properly. But other than that... <laughs> Uh, you don't have to do any work for it. And I try to stay in the airborne as often as I possibly could mm-hmm. for that extra money. And um, so were you expecting to go to Vietnam? Did you want to? Did you not care either way? Well, everybody who was in the service was going to Vietnam. We had a uh, we didn't have a volunteer army back then. We had a drafted army. And yet statistics show that at least half or more than half of the people who served during that era volunteered to do so. Now, admittedly, some of them volunteered so that they could get the MOS that they wanted or get the service that they wanted and so on. Uh, but uh, most people are mistaken when they think that people didn't want to, that nobody wanted to serve. You know, there was a vast array of 
young people who wanted to do what they knew was the right thing to do, and that was to that was to serve their country. Whether you agreed with the mission or not, that's a separate issue altogether. Um, politics didn't enter into it. Um, I was going to go. You, don't forget, you got paid extra for going to fight too. You got sixty five dollars a month. Uh, uh, family uh, combat pay and th- uh, dollar a day family separation allowance. That's that's an extra almost twenty five bucks a week. Mm-hmm. No, it, seriously, I. Most of the people with whom I served, uh, whether they were drafted or they volunteered, wanted to go do their bit and fight. Mm-hmm. Now, you thought different of it after somebody started shooting at you. It's mm-hmm. a completely different environment altogether than you expect. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but I and a lot of other, most of the other people volunteered to go. So what, uh, what years were you there and uh, what they assign you to do? Well, I was, uh, I was there from... September of 1967, in my first tour, I got wounded in March of 1968. I went back there again after the Army had sent me to graduate school. I went back there again in 1972. I got there on the 4th of July, 1972, and uh, and returned uh, in the first week of January, 1973. And by that time, I, I was one of the last combat troops out of there, uh, most of the Combat people had already been withdrawn when I went back, but th- th- I I went there in both on both occasions as an advisor to Vietnamese units. Mm. Um, I didn't want to do that. Nobody wanted to be an advisor. You have really no control over the troops and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, whoever you're advising, the battalion commander or the brigade commander, he can take or not take any of your guidance no matter how well considered it is, and frequently they didn't take it. So it's kind of a frustrating a frustrating job, and it was quite dangerous. I mean, the Vietnamese units were at the forefront of the majority of the fighting, particularly in my second tour in 72 when all the American units had already been withdrawn. I was an advisor of the 1st Airborne Battalion of the Vietnamese Airborne Division, and I joined them at the time that the uh, Vietnamese were trying to take back the two northernmost provinces of Vietnam after the North Vietnamese Easter Offensive. Uh, so I saw a lot of, I saw a lot, a great deal of combat in, in both tours. Mm-hmm. So I was just, I was basically just a frontline soldier then and for most of my career in the Army. Were you um, just you and a, and a translator or were there more advising? Like when you would go out, would it be like company level or? Larger. Well, it's a very interesting question. Typically, we would deploy as battalions, although uh, combat in 1972 was much more conventional, and we were part of an entire division uh, attacking the Take Back Quang Tri province. We and the enemy both had artillery and tanks and all the rest of that stuff, so we moved as fairly substantial units. But by and large, the maneuver unit in both instances, was the battalion. There were four advisors, two officers and two non-commissioned officers, and um, and no translators. I mean, they sent us all to language school, and we were supposed to be able to speak Vietnamese, which most of us did with some facility and picked it up. You know, when you're immersed in it, you can speak it pretty well hmm. after a while. But But the leadership of the units, both officers and senior NCOs, 
especially after having been exposed to Americans for a decade, all spoke, spoke pretty good English. Hmm. So would you basically, would you live with the troops or were you sort oh, yes. of? Okay. Live with the troops. Didn't go anywhere. Uh, I mean, we all went together. We lived with the troops. We got little to no support from uh, logistical or any other kind of support from the Americans. Mm-hmm. They ate with the Vietnamese, ate, used the weapons that they had and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and our contact with Americans was was only through the advisory chain of command. So I had a an American boss who had an American boss and so on up the chain of command. And after about division level, you never saw any Americans in any case. But there were just four of us. There are four advisors, two officers and two NCOs with each battalion that was deployed. So the first tour, what, what would you say were the strengths and weaknesses of the Vietnamese military the first time around? They had already been fighting for a long period of time. And when you've been fighting an unconventional conflict for a long period of time, it's very easy to get uh, to, to lose, uh, lose interest in what's going on. Don't forget, they had a conscript army, too. And, mm. and so everybody, not everybody, but the large majority of those people were drafted. The Vietnamese were drafted. And they'd been at it for a long, long time. They had lost a significant percentage of their leadership which was to be exacerbated years later, five years later, when I went back. They'd lost even more of their leadership in combat. And so the level of experience was not what you'd expect and was probably what, after you've been in combat for a while, was exactly what you'd expect for an organization that had been in almost continuous combat for most of its existence. So leadership, um, generally speaking, was not as strong as it it should be. Mm-hmm. And to be honest with you, it wasn't that strong in American units either. Don't forget, we rotated our people back home. If you were still alive after 12 months in an American unit, you went home. Mm-hmm. That means there's not a great deal of, um, there's not a great deal of, uh, of, of, of expertise that you can find that gets translated into the, the, the rest of the unit since the whole unit turns over one more more than 120%, don't forget, people get killed and wounded and then go home mm-hmm. one way or the other. So it's ex- extremely difficult to keep up a level of professionalism. That's one of the things that the Vietnamese units did not have. Some of the units were extremely good. Uh, 2nd Battalion, 16th Regiment of the 9th Vietnamese Infantry Division, of which I was a part the first tour, and the Vietnamese Airborne Division, the second tour, were well above average in that respect, but were not nearly good enough to counteract um, the, the the doggedness of the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese Army. Mm-hmm. Um, they also had supply chain problems, administrative and logistical problems. Um, units tended to live with their with their dependents, with their families. Mm. And so, if you were on a base camp with a an infantry battalion, there were in-laws and wives and children and extended families who were living with you there. And if they, you got attacked in your base camp, those casualties included in-laws and wives and children and so on. Mm. It's hard to keep morale up under circumstances like that. Uh, the, the Vietnamese also did not have 
a great deal of experience in fighting an unconventional conflict, despite the fact that that's the kind of conflict they had been fighting for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we didn't do a very good job of weaning them away from American assets like airstrikes mm-hmm. and getting them to do the kinds of things that would endear them to the local population. So they never got the hang, as long as I was there, never really got the hang of pacifying is not the right word, but that's the word that was used then, mm-hmm. of pacifying the countryside and making it difficult for the Viet Cong to, uh, to win. In the end, what defeated Vietnam was not any of that stuff, but a huge onslaught from the North Vietnamese after the Americans had withdrawn we had withdrawn our support. Um, so there's a lot of blame to go around. Um, the, the Vietnamese had a lot of strong points. They were well knit. They were very close. They were extremely nice to the Americans, the American advisors in every respect. And when I went back there, what, about five or six years ago, mm-hmm. uh, uh, for the first time in, what, 46 years, what, 47 years, I realized what... Uh, what really nice people are. They love Americans. Hmm. And um, and it was nice to get back. Anyway, but I digress. No, interesting stuff. I'm speaking with Jack Jacobs, Colonel U.S. Army, retired, author of If Not Now, When. You can find more information about his work on the book's Amazon webpage. If you like this episode so far, please like it and consider subscribing. All of my links can be heard at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, so the point about the um, dependence being with the soldiers, that would su- sort of suggest to me that many areas of Vietnamese, uh, Vietnam, South Vietnam, did not have people, the people who were left in villages wouldn't have connections to the military then. If the, if the people who stayed at home, yeah, you see where I'm going with that? Like it seems. Yes, exactly. So uh, two things about that. The first is that Vietnamese units went through villages all the time. And the best ones, of course, did a good job there. Uh, there were also regional force and popular force units, as to get back to your point, mm-hmm. whose members were drawn from the local areas. Okay. And whose responsibility included securing those local areas. So everybody had some connection to the military establishment, either active duty, what we would call active duty, or what we would call National Guard and Reserve. They had a close relationship, both physically and emotionally with them. But a close relationship is not, it, it, it is important, but insufficient to win. And like I mentioned, you have to have the right support, the right leadership, you have to learn tough lessons, and don't, don't, make the same mistakes and all the rest of that stuff. And that's, that's what the Vietnamese were missing. Don't forget also, it was for the Vietnamese, there was not a great deal of enthusiasm for the central government. And, and that's, that's one of the things that made it extremely difficult for the Vietnamese to win. Mm -hmm. So how often would you, as an advisor, would you sometimes go to the very, very front edge of the fighting, or would you always stay back with the, the leadership of the no, battalion? No, every day. We're all out with the in the front. And by the way, the distance between the the leading edge 
the, the scout platoon of an infantry battalion and the battalion headquarters is not very far in any case, particularly when uh, you get into a firefight, which is what happened every single day hmm. from the day I got there to the day I left. Uh, so, no, we were out front, uh, usually one NCO and one officer, which meant me and one of the NCOs were with the front elements all the time. Mm-hmm. So just for... Um just to get a sense, what would be the different the distance between the scouts and the headquarters? Just to give a it depends. It depends on the terrain. Mm-hmm. So when I was down in Fourth Corps in the Delta, where you have wide open spaces, um, sometimes a thousand meters on a square of rice paddies and so on, where the fields of fire are extremely long, and so the distance would be not insubstantial. You don't want to have the majority of your force engaged with the enemy. You want to keep your your uh, uh, optionality, and so you engage with the scout platoon, and then you maneuver the major force around. Mm-hmm. If there's very little cover and concealment, you want that distance to be not just a couple of meters. You want it to be you know, several hundred meters at least, so you have the capability of maneuvering around and defeating the enemy from the flank, which is, you don't want to go right over open terrain and attack them frontally. Mm-hmm. Other times we would be in places like the Yumin Forest and other areas that were, ex- were d- just jungle areas, no fields of fire, lots of cover and concealment, mm-hmm. and there the distance would be 100 meters or less. I mean, there was you could barely see the guy in front of you. Mm-hmm. So um, tell me then about the action that, that led to your um, being awarded the Medal of Honor. Well, um, we had been engaged with a unit pretty much continuously since the start of the Tet Offensive at the end of January 1968. Mm -hmm. And what you want to do if you're having your way with the enemy is that you want to hold on to them. You want to keep having your way with the enemy. You want to keep beating them up. You want to defeat them in detail, get around to their rear, prevent their escape and do all the things infantry people are supposed to do to defeat the enemy by means of fire and maneuver uh, to kill or capture them. Mm-hmm. And we were doing that, and then one day the enemy broke contact. Now, if you're having a, a bad time of it with the opposing force, you want to break contact as quickly as possible, and they withdrew. And we didn't know where they were going or where they went. Don't forget intelligence was not the same as it is today where we have drones and satellites and we, we, we know everything. We can send a precision guided munition up either the left or the right nostril of some enemy troop and a new leader. I mean, we could, we could barely tell how many people we were with whom we were engaged, but they broke contact. Our battalion and a couple of other battalions in the area were attached to a province which was commanded by a province chief who was an army brigadier general. It was the equivalent of a separate brigade. Mm-hmm. And their intelligence apparatus uh, came to the conclusion that the enemy was located at some specific point. Mm-hmm. Not all that far from where we had been fighting, but they, they, they figured they knew where they were. The center of mass was at the confluence to two canals. Mm-hmm. And so they mounted an operation that inserted a ranger battalion to the east of this point and they moved due west towards it and inserted us 
my battalion at dawn on the north bank of the Mekong River and moved due north towards the same location. And, and the idea that we, we were going to move perpendicular to one another and encounter these bad guys right where they were. And what were you, you on foot or were you on foot? Oh yeah. On foot. The, the, once we were, once we got off the landing boats, we were on foot. And once the Rangers got off the helicopters, they were on foot. Now, as we talked about earlier, you don't want to engage the enemy, especially if you don't know where they are for sure. Mm-hmm. You don't want to engage them with your main forces. So you're supposed to have the scouts out in front of you. They discover where the bad guys are, and then you maneuver against them. And I didn't see the scouts. Italian commander said that they were definitely out there. I didn't see them to the front. They're supposed to screen to the front and the flanks. Mm -hmm. To make a long story short, we got within 50 meters of them, and they opened up an enormous L-shaped ambush. Mm -hmm. And we lost a lot of people killed and wounded in the initial initial seconds of the battle. Years later, when I went back, the North Vietnamese, the Vietnamese government had had found the enemy commander who was opposed to our unit that day. He was a retired brigadier general, was living next door to a bicycle repair shop not far from where we had fought. Oh, wow. He He had been a local VC district chief and was in charge of, he, he's the guy who's set up the ambush and so on. And we did a, we did a, a couple of packages for NBC Nightly News where I was talking to him. And one of the things I asked him was, how did you know? I mean, clearly you knew we were coming. He said, yeah, we had three days to set up this enormous L-shaped ambush. I said, how did you know we were coming? He said, we had spies in the province chief's headquarters. We knew your entire operations plan. And he put together, he said, between 250 and 300 B.C., and waited for us to walk right into the ambush. Hmm. That's frustrating. Uh, Very. Even in retrospect, even in retrospect, what is it? 55, 50, 53 years. Yeah. It's still, it's still frustrating to think about. So I imagine when he said that, did, did certain people's names, you know, or certain people pop in your head? Like, I wonder if I always suspected that person or this person or. No, not at all. It hmm. could have been anybody. It could have been somebody in the, not in my unit, but in the province chief's headquarters, mm-hmm. in his operations section. It could have been just about anybody. And he gave me the impression, or at least he even said that there were more, there was more than one and that he had a few people positioned in the headquarters and he got the whole operations plan. No, it was n- nobody. I don't forget. I'm a, when you're, when you're what doing what we were doing, you're at the bottom of the food chain. I mean, you don't even see the province chief. He's, some brigadier general, you're lucky if you see a major. Hmm. <laughs> so, so did he, who, who was the one calling in support from the U S either artillery or air? Was it you or someone Well, We else? had no artillery to speak of. We had 105 millimeter artillery pieces, not our unit did our battalion, but there were some that were assigned to the province, but they were not in support of us in any case. Um, uh, I was calling in, I called in airstrikes, but the Air Force airplanes got uh, got driven off by the ground fire. There was a great deal of, you can imagine, these guys had three days to set up and they had 12.5 and 14.7 millimeter anti-aircraft guns and 
all the enemy shooting with AK-47s and machine guns at these airplanes that had tried to drop bombs on them. They drove them off. Hmm. They also drove off Army helicopters, uh, gunships. Hmm. So we effectively didn't have uh, the kind of support one would expect to have in a circumstance like this. Mm-hmm. We did get some support from Army helicopters. We got a couple of bombs dropped from Air Force airplanes and support from Navy gunships um, who, who were particularly uh, particularly brave in this, uh, in this circumstance. Navy gunships coming in by, yes. by river or no, no. Yeah, they were, they, these were old B model Hueys that I think were sold to the Navy by the army and were painted flat gray with a four inch brush. I mean, these were ancient, they were ancient even then carrying enormous loads of ammunition, probably barely get off the ground. They were anchored on a, a landing ship helicopter that was moored in the middle of the Mekong River some distance from us and came up unannounced and said that they would support us and even evacuated some of the wounded, including me. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very brave, uh, very brave. Good, good. I, I Except for beat Navy during the Army-Navy game, I never have anything bad. I don't let anybody say anything bad about the Navy. They saved my life. Yeah. So what happened? So... So when the ambush started, were you one of the ones wounded or, or what happened? I was wounded immediately. Mm-hmm. My NCO and I, Ray Ramirez and I, were wounded immediately, mm-hmm. um, as were a lot of other people. And, uh, and it was a very difficult time. I mean, it was, we were caught in an open area and the enemy had got the drop on us. And, and uh, you know, something had to be done. My perception was that in the, this was a genuine crisis. You know, we misuse it. We overuse the term crisis all the time. This is a crisis. And that's, a, you know, if everything is a crisis, then nothing's a crisis. Right. The crisis is a, is a, is a particular kind of thing. Things are really bad. They're getting worse. Something has to be done. It has to be done right now. And if it isn't done right now, everything's going down the drain. Now, there are very few circumstances that are like this, but in, in life, one of the few places where this happens frequently, if not with numbing regularity, is in combat. In the crucible of armed combat, when people are ardently trying to kill you, it is a crisis every time you run up against it. Mm-hmm. And most people, thankfully, don't get the opportunity to see what a genuine crisis is. But this was one of them. And, uh, you know, a lot of my buddies were killed and wounded and something had to be done. Mm-hmm. My perception was that in this in identical circumstance, they would have done the same thing. And there were, as in a lot of engagements like this, there were a lot of brave people that day. Mm-hmm. I apologize. My, you know, my questions probably sound very technical and, and sterile, but, um, you know, that's, <laughs> um, that's quite all right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so did they open up with, um, did they throw grenades and then start firing or was it just gunfire? You know, at the- uh, machine guns, small arms, automatic weapons, rocket propelled grenades mm-hmm. and mortars mm-hmm. is what they had. So like everything, it was now there was there were quite a few exchanges of grenades um, that took place. Uh, but that was later in the uh, that was later in the engagement as I got closer to them and so on. So oh. I found I'm not a very good shot. I'm an area weapons kind of guy the large volume of fire poorly aimed and hand grenades 
pretty good at that stuff. So was your first thought to um, break contact or get the wounded out or, you know, what, yeah, what goes that, through your mind? That is the first, the, your first, you, you've got to hold the enemy down so you can start evacuating bad guys, mm-hmm. uh, the, the guys who are badly hurt. Mm-hmm. And my NCO was badly hurt. He was my, he was my first, uh, the, you know, I've been with him a long time. He's a great friend and, and he survived, by the way. He had abdominal and sucking chest wounds and so on and deep. He did manage to survive. But, yeah, the first thing to do is to suppress the enemy fire so you can evacuate wounded people. Mm-hmm. And then it, it, to a safe location, it was a copse of trees nearby. Mm-hmm. And so that you can assess the situation and see what you can do to roll up the enemy flank, because that's what you want to do. Did you – so I guess in a sense, do you see the opportunity for, you know, to counter them? Again, I'm thinking in terms of just the, the – the extreme amount of input coming in, you know, how yeah. you organize yourself. Well, you, you know, that's a very interesting suggestion of what, what the intellectual process is. Mm-hmm. So people like to say that they, they, they're thinking clearly in circumstances like that. And of course you're not mm-hmm. thinking clearly. Indeed, you may not even be thinking at all. So part of it is instinct. Mm-hmm. Part of it is your training. A large part of it is your training. And part of it is your experience. And then there's the overarching motivation to do the best thing you possibly can for your unit and your buddies. To take care of the good guys and defeat the bad guys. And I think those things combined are greater than the sum of their parts. Mm -hmm. That's really what gets people to do the right thing i mean you know in circumstances like that you don't say hmm i think these are my options i mean you're not a division commander trying to you're you're not eisenhower trying to figure out what the the operations plan is going to be to land d-day from d-day i mean you've got no time to figure out the things to do and thankfully uh training highly big motivation to take care of your buddies and defeat the bad guys and your experience and a great deal of adrenaline, those things compensate for the lack of ability to, to see very, very clearly what's going on. Mm-hmm. And then if you guess right, you can then see what's going on. When we got to the flank of the enemy, I could see, oh, well, this, this is the way to defeat them. But that was after the, the battle had already been joined for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and this question, either either yourself or people you observed in combat, how how, how much does emotion take over? It, it, meaning, you know, how much do do people just want to stop and break down when they see their buddies, you know, get torn up like this? You know, well, that's very interesting. I talk to people all the time, including people who are in uniform or about ready to go downrange, or they're going to get commissioned. They're going to get they're, they're they're about ready to graduate from the NCO Academy, things like that, basic training, so on. And they all ask the same question, or certainly it's in their mind. Do, do you think that I can do it when I have to? And, if, and I can tell you from my experience, the answer is absolutely yes. I can't say I've never seen somebody cower behind a rock in the middle of a firefight and become paralyzed and not be able to do anything. But that number is exceedingly small. It is really quite astonishing how uh, when things are extremely difficult, people rally to the cause. And I think at least part of it is because you're, you're, you're with your buddies. You know, it was, uh, 
It was Benjamin Franklin who, before the revolution actually occurred, wrote, we either hang together or we will surely hang separately. And he was absolutely right. It's, it's, it's real love that generates, uh, that generates the kind of motivation to get things done in the face of extremely difficult circumstances. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with Jack Jacobs, Colonel U.S. Army, retired, author of If Not Now, When? You can find more information about his work on the book's Amazon webpage. If you like this episode so far, please like it and consider subscribing. All of my links can be heard at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. So how long, um, how long did everything occur from the point of, from when the ambush occurred to when you were able to stop and take a breath, you know, when it was wrapped up? Like, what was the time? Uh, about an hour and a half, two hours, something like that. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, the battle was still going on and I, I was, I, I had been bleeding badly and, and I, I had to take a rest and I sat down behind a tree and I couldn't get up hmm. after that. And thankfully my boss, the senior advisor of the battalion and another NCO who was with him and at the battalion headquarters, uh, uh saved the day, rescued me and Ray Ramirez and a bunch of other people and got us aboard a helicopter and out of there. Mm-hmm. How, how um, were, no, go ahead. How are the Vietnamese medics? Pretty good. They had plenty of experience, you know. Hmm. But you know, we're in an environment now in which if you you can get evacuated, uh, if you're alive when you get to a, an aid station, you have a ninety eight percent chance of surviving. We didn't have that back in those days. I mean, my second tour when I was with the Vietnamese Airborne Division, we had engagements in which battles in which people got wounded and couldn't get evacuated and and died five days later I mean, hmm. um, so uh, but the medics the medics had a lot of experience they knew exactly what to do mm-hmm. and, and so did we I mean we'd been in combat for six months we knew we could take care of ourselves and each other uh, fairly well mm-hmm. and I guess you carried um, basic medical kits with you was that standard had, um, had I don't know what they carry today, but we carried uh, we carried uh, first aid pack, mm-hmm. and we carried two of them. So yeah. each person carried two of them. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea, like you're on an airplane and the oxygen masks come down, you're supposed to take care of yourself first. Mm-hmm. But nobody nobody takes care of himself first. They usually wind up taking care of their buddies. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's all we had. We just had first aid packs. So I'm so how were you able to? carry on for an hour and a half you know adrenaline pumping and doing all this while you know while bleeding is it were you just oblivious to yeah i think you're oblivious you're not you're not thinking about yourself very much you're thinking about what's going on and what has to be done and and you won't get that just from me you ask anybody who's been in combat mm-hmm. uh, will tell you exactly the same thing yeah there's there's Fear, of course, but it's it's kind of interesting. Fear doesn't paralyze you; it galvanizes your ability to carry on. Mm-hmm. I mean, you either do it or you're gonna, you either do it or you're going to die. Well, I don't want to die, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. And, and most people think this exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, just pure energy. I mean, there are a lot of people who've been in combat, and most of them will tell you exactly the same thing. You just don't say, 
well, this is it. I'm checking out. Mm-hmm. Um, unless most people don't do that. So if I think before you say, so you were close to the end of this tour then at this point. Is that correct? No, no, no. Only six months into a 12 month tour. Six, oh, okay. seven months. Okay. Okay. My math was off then. Um, My math is always off. <laughs> Um, so did, did you expect to be awarded the medal of honor for, or, or I don't want to say expect, or how surprised were you? Cause I assume everyone's surprised. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a complete surprise. I got a call about 18 months later from, uh, I was a company commander down at Fort Benning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I call 18 months later from some Colonel in, uh, army awards branch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Colonel Schmedlap. I can't even tell you what his name was. My company clerk yells in, Crescencio Alvarez yells in. He's, he was been a refugee from Cuba, had like three PhDs. It was my company clerk. Anyway, he, call, he calls in. He says, hey, sir, there's some guy, some colonel from Washington wants to talk to you. Now, you got to realize back in those days, now, phone calls are free now, right? They're free. Well, they weren't free back then. And so if this was a gag call, Nobody made gag calls because they, they actually cost money <laughs> to make a phone call. And this guy says he's Colonel Schmedlap from Army Awards Branch. I, I'll tell you the I'll tell you the, the conversation almost in almost in its entirety. Because mm-hmm. the, the contrast is now you get a call where you're gonna be at such and such time, the president wants to talk to you and so on. And there's 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 a great deal of press before the time before it occurs and so this guy says, uh, congratulations, you're going to receive the Medal of Honor. Um, and uh, this afternoon, one of my majors is going to call you up and make arrangements for you and your family to come to Washington and come to the White House so you can receive the award. You're not allowed to tell anybody except your immediate family, congratulations again, out here, and hung up the phone. <laughs> and that was the entirety of the conversation. Hmm. And sure enough, this guy called up later that afternoon and I don't know, a couple of weeks later was down at the, uh, at the White House getting decorated. Mm-hmm. What, what was your feeling, um, about receiving it? Well, for the shock first, mm-hmm. first of all, uh, second, um, an interesting notion that was told to me later by, um, uh, by, no, no, than Eddie Rick, Eddie Rickenbacker by uh, uh, Jimmy Doolittle, mm-hmm. whom I met at a, a dinner with the Medal of Honor recipient sometime later. Mm-hmm. And he said, let me tell you something, young man. This is Jimmy Doolittle, you know, right on Tokyo in 1942. He says, let me tell you something. He says, you're no longer Jack Jacobs. You're Jack Jacobs Medal of Honor recipient, and you better comport yourself accordingly. Do you understand what I'm telling you, young man? Mm-hmm. I said, yes, sir, I sure do. I mean, I was like 23 years old, and here's Jimmy Doolittle. Mm-hmm. But that was the notion. The the notion that I, and you ask any other Medal of Honor recipient, I'll tell you the same thing. We don't wear the award for ourselves. We wear it for all those who can't. Somebody once asked Bob Carey, I think it was, Medal of Honor recipient from Vietnam, lost his leg, he was a SEAL, became governor of Nebraska, and then the senator from Nebraska. Somebody once asked him, what does it take to get the Medal of Honor? He said, well, you have to do something. People have to see it. They have to be able to write, and they can't hate you. Those are the four requirements. And so you think about it, and you say, you know, think about all those people who performed valiantly in combat for the last 246 years, mm-hmm. and, and nobody saw it. 
where people saw it and they themselves were killed. And there are no more witnesses mm-hmm. where people wrote it up and reported it, but either accidentally or on purpose. And it's happened in both cases. The paperwork was thrown away, lost, destroyed. And you realize that you, it's nothing to do with you. It has to do with all those brave young men and women who, who deserve it and, uh, and, and, and didn't get decorated. Mm-hmm. And that's why all us recipients say the same thing. We're not wearing it for ourselves. Do you know who, who set the, the paperwork up for you? Did you ever find out the? Well, the soldiers who survived around me and the, the two NCOs and Major Nolan, the, my boss and, uh, his boss, uh, General Jirasi and so on. I mean, you know, they have to get witness statements and for the Vietnamese, they have to get them translated and all that stuff. And the battalion commander who was with Major Nolan and so on. So, so and this question isn't obviously to demean anything, but it, it almost seems like it's good for the general too to have a, a, one of his guys get the Medal of Honor. You know, it, he, there's an incentive for him to, to push for it in a sense. Yeah, there is, although there are plenty of instances in which the, the people in the chain of command thought it was not a good idea, and they killed it. Hmm. And then many of them were resurrected years later. I mean, I went to the, I went to the award ceremony for a guy named uh, Ted Rubin, now deceased, who had been recommended for the Medal of Honor four separate times during the Korean War. Wow. And for different actions, by the way. Wow. Who had been... He was a uh, he was a, uh, a Holocaust survivor. Got freed from Mauthausen concentration camp by Patton's 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment, mm-hmm. and swore that if he ever got to the United States, he'd become a GI Joe, so he could pay the United States back for saving his life. I mean, his whole family were destroyed, you know, by the Nazis. Mm-hmm. It was recommended four separate times for different actions, and the chain of command threw the paperwork away on purpose. And it was resurrected 50 years, 55 years after the fact by some of his fellow soldiers who realized that he didn't get the decoration. Mm -hmm. And that goes to the fourth point you made, make sure that, you know, hopefully someone liked you or or didn't hate you. I forget the exact one. Yeah, everybody hated, I mean, the chain of command, his fellow soldiers loved him. You know, he got captured, was in a Chinese communist POW camp and so on wow. saved a lot of people there. It's a tremendous story, um, and all true because there were plenty of witnesses. But the, the the senior NCOs and the the captain and the colonel and the they didn't want to have anything to do with it. And they threw his paperwork away. Hmm. Hmm. And you know why? Because he was a Jew. That's right. And they told him no Jew is ever going to get any award in this unit, and threw the paperwork away. That that's what I suspected um, was the reason, but uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's definitely that in the military, um, but it's strange. The military is is also the leader in in integrating, you know, integration in a sense. I think it's, it's a been, tremendous cross section of the American public. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that's it's. You want to see what America looks like? Join the army, mm-hmm. yeah. and that's what America looks like. So the um, that second tour you did. So at this point. You know, four years later, you had the Medal of Honor. What was your, I, I imagine there was some resistance to having you go back into danger. There was a great deal of resistance, and I had to argue my way back. The Army sent me to graduate school. I got out of graduate school in 72, 
I was going to go teach at West Point in 73. So they were going to send me on a short tour. That is an unaccompanied tour for one year. And they wanted to send me to Korea. And I said, I want to go to Vietnam. Well, you can't go to Vietnam. Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And finally, they despaired of, of, of convincing me of anything, but they figured that they, they, it would shut me up. It says, okay, we're sending you to Vietnam. Don't forget, by the way, you get an extra 25 bucks a week. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Family separation allowance, combat pay. And I was not making a whole lot more money then. You know, by then I was maybe making $350 a month or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said, okay, we're sending you to Vietnam, but we're assigning no combat for you. We're assigning you to a desk job in Saigon and uh, at the Military Assistance Command headquarters in Vietnam. No combat. Okay. The instant I got there to Camp Alpha, I picked up the phone and I called the airborne advisory team and, uh, and the Airborne Division was up fighting, like I said, to take back Quang Tri Province. You can't get away with any of this stuff now, but you could back then, in any case, if you were persistent. And they told the NCO, picked up the phone. He said, what do you want? Everybody's gone. I said, listen, I'm here at Camp Alpha. I want to join the Airborne Advisory Team. And he said, well, I'll tell you. He says, uh, I've got a friend in orders section. Give me your name, rank, and service number, and I'll be there to Camp Alpha and pick you up in about two hours. He went down there, talked to his friend, changed my orders. He collected me. We got on a C-123 at Tonsonute Air Base and flew up to <laughs> flew up to Weifubai Airport, got collected by a helicopter, and subsequently got shot down and so on. The Army was not happy when they discovered it, but they did not discover it for six months. Like I said, you can't get away with this now. You know, everybody, they've got a picture of your retina. They know where you are at all times and so on. Did, did this individual know you had won, you had, you had received the Medal of Honor? No, no, he didn't know. He didn't, no, he didn't know. Nobody knew until they found out later on. But by then it was too late. We were, we were getting shot at every day. So it's too late to do anything about it then. Yeah, he was just fresh meat. Come on in. We'll take you. You know, the, the, a new airborne soldier, talking about a private soldier, had about a life life expectancy in the unit of about 18 days. In 18 days, you're either dead or wounded. Wow. I mean, we it was a big turnover. The enemy had tanks and artillery. And there was a lot of fighting going on. It was a real conventional conflict. But um, we persisted, and I was in arguably among the best, if not the best, Vietnamese units in the country. You know, it's fascinating. I had never thought about what you just said. You know, you started out fighting the unconventional war, more or less. And then the second tour saying that it's conventional is really leads to so many other questions and, and things to investigate. I don't know if you can comment any more on that, but that that's just really interesting to hear. Yeah. I mean, our unit, I think, we attacked two divisions abreast with the Vietnamese Marine Division on our right, up to Quang Tri City, turn Quang Tri City over to the Marines, and then turn left to go southwest towards the Yadrang Valley and so on. And it was tough going. Lots of hills, lots of enemy. and it's, uh, It was a tough slog. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of the American support had already gone and all the combat units had already left. Mm-hmm. So the Vietnamese were on their own. So apart from, so 
so this unit you were with, you said was, was very good. Um, what other differences did you note between the last time and this time, as far as the, the Vietnamese military? Uh, a lot of the leadership had been killed or bad, wounded badly enough so that they were no longer in the system. Mm-hmm. So you had a lot of young NCOs. There's nothing wrong with young NCOs. We fought the entire Second World War with soldiers and non-commissioned officers who did not look like John Wayne and instead mm-hmm. looked like the kid off the, the Gerber baby food bottle. I mean, they don't call it the infantry for nothing. It's infants who do all this work. Seriously, that's where the name comes from. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but they didn't have the kind of experience uh, that we needed in order to in order to get it done. You know, the second war, think about this. Second World War lasted from the time we got involved. You know, we tried, we dodged trying to be involved in it. We weren't going to get involved. So we didn't get involved actually until the beginning of 42, 43, 44, 45, three and a half years. That's all. We only fought for three and a half years. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, we put our shoulder to the wheel and everybody fought. I mean, we had 19 and a half million people in uniform Mm. during the Second World War. And we had a, we had an objective. Our strategic objective was unconditional surrender, which we didn't decide until 43, but still it was unconditional surrender, which meant we're going to kill you bad guys. And we're going to keep killing you until one of two things happens. You give up or you're all dead. Those are the only two options here. Well, we, for a wide variety of political reasons, we decided, some good and some bad, we decided that we weren't going to do that in any conflict since the Second World War. And as a result, the results were not surprising. Mm-hmm. The Vietnamese had been fighting for, for 20 years. They've been fighting for 20 years in, and not three and a half years. Mm-hmm. You can get a lot done if you have an objective of unconditional surrender in three and a half years. If you're fighting for 20 years and you don't have a really strong central government, and it's not going to turn out well, mm-hmm. and it didn't. So at this time, what was your feeling? You know, was the was the U.S. at this point was it an idea of we're going to try to win, or we're just going to try to hold the territory we had? You know, South Vietnam. Um, well, that was the view in Washington. We were going to try to do our best by empowering the Vietnamese. We're going to give them weapons and training and. They're going to, it's like what we're doing in Afghanistan. That's not going to turn out well. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, that was the objective at the top of the food chain. But don't forget, when you're at the bottom of the food chain, politics has nothing at all to do with anything. How am I going to survive and how am I going to defeat the enemy and how am I going to make sure my buddies stay alive? That's all you're focused on. Mm -hmm. The politics, either in the streets or in the aisles of Congress, Neither one of those things is of any interest to And and so how, so that tour, um, how long was that one again? Well, That's, about six months, another six months. And then and then they sent you. It home. was supposed to be a year, but it was only six months, and I, I got dinged again. Then oh. came home January seventy three. Was that a serious wound or or no? It was completely unserious. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was. Every wound is serious, but this is in the giant scheme of things, trivial. Mm-hmm. Now, was your wife, uh, you might have been making her nervous with what you were doing. Uh, I, su- I suspect, yes. 
but there was some there was some life insurance involved so perhaps the motivation to be really concerned was far less than what one would otherwise think so then and then your mili- your army career continued was it um after that you know what 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 were you doing after that uh so i went to west point to teach i was there teaching from 73 to 76 mm-hmm. among mm-hmm. my students were marty dempsey who grew up to be chief staff of the army mm-hmm. Um, Ray Odierno hmm. grew up to be chief staff of the army. Marty Dempsey group after was chief staff of the army was chairman of the joint chiefs of staff. Mm-hmm. The guy who's currently the secretary of defense was a cadet there when I was a major hmm. time flies. In any case, I did that for three years, went to command and general staff college as a major, uh, was a battalion executive officer in the seventh division for three years, got promoted to lieutenant colonel and commanded my own battalion down in Panama. I was deployed down in Panama for two years, came back and uh, went to the National War College and taught there mm-hmm. and uh, and then retired as a colonel. So it, it must be interesting to look back and, you know, you see these individuals who go to great heights within the military um, structure, you know, and you see them when they're young and obviously much less mature. You know, relatively speaking, you know, um, what uh, can, can you just make us give any comments about what you see? You know, can you tell someone's going to mature and, and do it right when they get older? Or do you you know, what, what's your perspective? I think often you can tell that all things being equal, and of course, they never are. This person's going to do quite well. Mm-hmm. And you. I mean, I'm talking about myself. I'm to the extent that I'm right about those people. I'm far less right about the people who are going to fail. That guy's not going to amount to anything, hmm. and discover some years later that he's, you know, he's a senator from someplace or other, or an extremely wealthy lawyer who's done just loaded up one day and decided he wasn't going to be a bum anymore and did a great job and became was running a medium-sized company and so on. Mm-hmm. But by and large, there's something about people, even when they're young, there's something about people who have the capability of becoming um, becoming extremely successful, whether they're in uniform or not. Mm-hmm. That is often apparent. Frequently, they don't. I mean, this person's going to do really well and doesn't for one reason or another. But it's rare to see a complete stumble bum rise to the top of the food chain. They they do sometimes, but not nearly as frequently as the people who are really good when they're 21 years old mm-hmm. rising to the top of the food chain. Mm-hmm. And considering the uh, the value and the impact West Point has on developing leaders, is there did you see a lot of sort of uh, internal politics or whatnot as far as how and what to teach the cadets? Because the instruction is so important for their future? No, no, not at all. And as a matter of fact, less now than ever because it's now a proper college. Kids can major in English and law and a wide variety of things. Whereas when I first went there, you got a general engineering degree and you studied like everything. Mm-hmm. So this, the, the structure, the, 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 uh, the courses of study were far, were far more strictured than they are today. Mm-hmm. But there was no... Nobody told you what to teach or anything like that. You did whatever you wanted. Mm-hmm. It, uh, and, and 
And that's that's continued to this day. I mean, it's a very free thinking place. I teach I teach money and banking in the fall and mass media and American politics in the spring. And uh, it's, it's, it's enormous fun because you have the capability of teaching kids not only about what the core curriculum is in that subject, but also about how to act when you're in charge of a large number of people, everything in the lives of a large number of people. Mm-hmm. That's something that people in the military get to do that nobody else gets to do. Mm-hmm. These kids who are going to graduate from West Point and ROTC in another couple of weeks are going to go immediately to being responsible for everything in the lives of 40 people. There's nothing like military service that gives young people authority and responsibility at an early age. Mm-hmm. And I tell I tell uh, employers all the time, they probably have more experience than you than you've got. Hmm. I mean, they've been, they've had responsibility and authority you can never, ever hope to have. Mm-hmm. So military pe- people have been in uniform can do anything. You point them in the right direction and say, you've got six weeks to learn how to be an institutional bond salesman. I got it. They're off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, you know, you often hear that after Vietnam, you know, the, the army sort of had to, um, sort of, you know, kind of shrunk a bit, you know, that, that people, people left, you know, it lost a lot of its institutional knowledge maybe, and that it sort of had to grow up again. Um, is that correct? Would you say that's sort of a correct idea or what's your opinion? Well, I'm not a fan of single factor analysis. I think there are a lot of things after Vietnam that made the, made the, the, the military establishment in the United States, um, something less than it had been. One is the fact that a lot of people who uh, really experienced people left, both officers and non-commissioned officers, first-class soldiers who'd been drafted. I mean, really good people, smart people. Their tour of duty was up. We don't have a draft anymore. They're out. They're gone and didn't stay. So we lost a lot of top-quality people and then entered into an environment in which we had an all-volunteer force and so the only people who came into the service were those who wanted to be in the service. Mm-hmm. You're looking at somebody who believes in universal service. Like I said earlier, you live in a free country, you owe it for something in the form of service. And I'm not saying that the people who join up are less qualified than the people who get drafted. That's far from the truth. Mm-hmm. But what what's really important is that we have a mix of everybody. And we didn't have that. But that was a problem right after. We, we have a professional cadre now and, and so on. But back then in the transition, it was a weaker time. Mm-hmm. We greatly reduced the size of the force. And like a lot of things, we threw out the baby with the bathwater. We got rid of more than we needed to. And as a result, we didn't have the capability to fight like we should have. Mm-hmm. Um, we had units in the Army that were not whole. You had a division, instead of having three brigades, they had two. One of the brigades was in the reserve components. Hmm. The, the, the units the, the units were not full. They were short of people. There was not enough money to train them properly. I mean, there were a lot of things that went wrong. And at least partially, it partially had to do with politics, if not wholly to do with politics. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was a difficult time. And it wasn't like the United States ceased being threatened by other forces. Mm-hmm. We had 
we had then and we still have today uh, adversaries who are interested in making our lives difficult. But we, we had to change our thinking, and it took us a long while to do that. I wonder how much um, what the U.S. was going through in, in, uh, emboldened the Soviet Union to go ahead into Afghanistan, you know, without maybe fear of, of you know, us getting involved or, you know, trying to stand in their way. Um, well, they're pretty, they were pretty sure that we weren't going to stand in their way. I mean, yeah. just like China's fairly certain we're not going to do anything in the Western Pacific because mm -hmm. uh, we sort of demonstrated that over a period of time that we're, matter of fact, we went through a period when we said we don't care about alliances and we're only interested in the continental United States, mm -hmm. which is obviously a big mistake from if we're worried about the continental United States, the way to make sure that you protect yourself is to, is to have a lot of friends. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm apolitical, so it, it, I forget who it was. It says I don't vote. It just encourages them. That's not true. I do vote, but <laughs> uh, it's easy to see how politicians can be everybody's least favorite person. Mm -hmm. All that notwithstanding, um, we ha we it it's important that we demonstrate the fact that we're interested in the worldwide threats and we're interested in our worldwide obligations. Uh, to the extent that we do that, I think we're going to be far better off than than we have been in the past. I mean, even guys like Woodrow Wilson, who was a bad guy from my standpoint, uh, was wrong about about how you engage outside the confines of the United States. Mm -hmm. e even even Roosevelt just followed the followed what the public what he thought the public wanted, and that was to stay out of it. Mm -hmm. By the time we got involved in the Second World War, the war in Europe had already been going on for two or three years. The war in Asia had been going on for a decade. Mm -hmm. And yeah. we mistakenly stayed out of it because that was the political theme of the day. Mm -hmm. And as we've discovered, that's the worst thing that you could do. Mm -hmm. Just wait for the problems to come to you. They, they Go ahead and do that. They will come to you, ladies and gentlemen. They will come to you. Yeah. And you won't be prepared because the same lack of intellectual acuity that says that I don't have any obligations outside my borders is the, exactly the same intellectual vacuity that ensures that you won't be prepared when it does come. Yeah. So, um, so back to, so quick question about the Medal of Honor. Um, when did you feel, so I'm thinking about that dinner you mentioned where you, you sort of had stars in your eyes, you know, seeing these great heroes, you know, at what point did you feel? Well, I mentioned Eddie Rickenbacker. He was at my table. He sat oh. next to me, the ace from the first world war. Right. At this dinner, there was still a living recipient from the boxer rebellion. Oh, wow. I named Bill Seach who conducted a bayonet charge on the Citadel at Beijing in 1900. He was still alive. Anyway. How do you resist asking for autographs at that? <laughs> Something like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's uh, you're too gobsmacked, I think, to do anything except stand there with your mouth open, seeing all these people. So at what point, um, and it's interesting to think, you know, people outside of that group would stare at you all in the same way, and yet there you are staring at others, you know, with that. Yeah, it's it's kind of a, it's kind of a, it's an, un, it's a discomfort sometimes because you know that there are people who should have been decorated and were not, hmm. and and um, 
and people who didn't come home, whether they should have been decorated or not, who didn't come home, mm-hmm. it is always that guilt. Um, it, but but you, you screw up your courage and do what is your duty, and that is to represent all those people mm-hmm. uh, who didn't come home. At what point did you feel comfortable in your role as a Medal of Honor I'm still not. No, I'm still not. What is this, 53 years mm-hmm. later? So, yeah. So you still feel like, yeah. It, um, it, it's, it's still uncomfortable. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. I, I don't know why. You ask other recipients, they'll tell you the same thing. It's mm-hmm. something you don't get, you can't get used to. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it sounds like because it's the other, the other guys, you know, the other people who, um, like you say, should have gotten it, um, or didn't come home. Or didn't come home, and those are the ones you focus on the most. Mm-hmm. Your friends who didn't come home, and you know there are lots more who didn't, mm-hmm. uh, who, whom you didn't know. I mean, in my war, fi- more than fifty-eight thousand young people died. That's a lot of people, mm-hmm. and and it, it when they shouldn't have. I mean, but but forget about whether or not the war was a good idea or bad idea strategically. Or, Tactically, I mean, by shouldn't have, I mean, when you're 20 years old, you're supposed to live another 50 years, you know. Mm-hmm. Were you able to keep in touch with any of your friends from the Yeah, v- some of them, the ones who survived, some of them, mm-hmm. large majority of them died, mm-hmm. I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. So what about, uh, I just wanted to mention again, the books that you've written. Would, would you like to highlight any of those? Well, it's, uh, it's uh, my memoir, If Not Now, When?, um, which was enormous fun to put together, uh, talks a great deal about some of the things we were talking about and other things. Mm-hmm. And of course, since I've got an opinion on every subject, a lot of those opinions are in, are in the book. Mm-hmm. It was, it was first published in 2008 and is still in print. Mm-hmm. And I don't get, I get no money if anybody buys it. So, uh, cause I, but, but it's, uh, it's heartily recommended. The other one, basic, is all anecdotes about basic training, and most of them make from a wide variety of people. Most of them make you laugh. Oh, okay. There, there's nothing. There's nothing funnier than soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, and coast guardsmen when they're 19 and 20 years. I mean, there is nothing funnier than those people, okay. and those anecdotes are all in there. Okay. And, and do you have any current or future projects you'd like to mention? I uh, did a. Uh, um, a series called Basic, following a bunch of people through basic training, mm-hmm. unscripted, uh, got sold to uh, Katzenberg's Quibi platform, which then went under. But that whole, all that stuff got sold to Hulu, mm-hmm. and it's going to be on Hulu. It's uh, 10 episodes or so. And uh, I think in the fall, it's going to, it's called Basic. Uh, it's called 10 Weeks. I'm sorry. It's called 10 Weeks. Mm-hmm. It's off my book basic it's another this is unscripted we follow kids through basic and they when you talked earlier about a cross section mm-hmm. of of america you're going to see a cross section of america going through basic army basic training at fort jackson south carolina the guy who's 32 years old is just hasn't done very well he's got a wife and family to support and says i don't care if i'm in the army or not in the army but here's a job i'm going in Mm-hmm. The young kid who's 19 years old says, I've got to defend the Republic. He joins up. Mm-hmm. Um, and we focused our attention on, 
I'm giving too much away, but on a number of people on the very first day they show up at basic training, but it's totally, I mean, we just followed people through basic training and, you know, the lousy marksmanship and the hand grenade that went awry. <laughs> oh boy. But 10 weeks it's called because basic army basic training is 10 weeks. And it's interesting because, you know, a lot of people have their opinions on, you know, the ability of millennials and generation Z to, um, to be in the military. So it'd be interesting to see this. You want to feel good about the defense of the Republic. You want to convince yourself that below the level of the major decision makers in Washington and elsewhere, the people who, the people who are actually going to get it done. You want to feel good about our ability to do that. You watch 10 weeks. You'll, you'll come back feeling really good about where we're headed. That sounds good. Um, do you, do you have a social media website or anything where people can follow? I do not. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm old and decrepit and I can barely turn my phone on. So I don't, I mean, I think there's, there, I've got, I don't have a website mm-hmm. and I, NBC put some stuff out for me from, about me from time to time. And I'm on some other stuff, but I never check it. So I apologize for being oh, a, a troglodyte <laughs> in the new, the new action media. I, I leave that to other people, but I don't, alas, no. So yeah, they can always go to Amazon to look for your book. It's obviously listed there and other bookseller websites. Um, so I feel like I could ask you a whole bunch more questions, but I don't want to take up your time. I appreciate. Uh, well, thanks. You. Thanks for talking to me. I don't get to talk to sentient beings very often. So this is a big, this is a big treat for me too. So, good, good. Great fun. Thank you. So, um, thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. Any parting thoughts or words to that, or? Well, I mean, I've, I, I probably talk much too much. I, I think um, a couple of ideas when I talk to young people in particular. You know, young people have a tendency to procrastinate. It's the worst thing you can do. Somebody once said that procrastination is the thief of time. And when you're really young, you procrastinate at least partially because you have you think you have an unending stream of days that disappear over the horizon Mm -hmm. and then when you get old and decrepit you realize that uh every day is a larger and larger percentage of what you've got left i mean no nobody's on his deathbed saying you know i should have wasted more time (laughs) nobody says that so i tell kids all the time if you got something to do the time to do it is right now you may get to a point where you can't do it Mm -hmm. uh it's important that people get to work in the, I don't mean get to work, get to work, but get to work in the proverbial sense. If there's something to do, you got to go do it. Um, it's really important. Uh, one other thing that's really kind of interesting is, um, is that we have a tendency to pattern ourselves after people we know of, not necessarily we know. Mm-hmm. Those probably are the wrong people to pattern ourselves after, and I apologize for ending that sentence with a perfect good preposition <laughs> mrs romano in third grade would take her 18 inch rule whack me over the knuckles if i did that um which i did but only once <laughs> yeah. but but it, it, it's i get asked from time to time by kids who are going out into the world what's the best advice you can give me and i think one of the best pieces of advice is to pattern yourself after good people mm-hmm. doing good things we all know the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do. And every time we've done the wrong thing and all of us have, we've known it's the wrong thing when we've done it. Mm-hmm. 
I got to pattern yourself after good people, but you can't be that person. I think it was Oscar Wilde probably said it best when he was asked the same question. What's the best piece of advice you can give me? He said, be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. <laughs> the thing to do is to find the best in people and do those things, but be yourself no matter what. Well, and so, and so I do have one more question. What you said just at, it popped in my head. Um, you mentioned that people should do some kind of service. What, what should be people, young people's mindset as far as joining the military? You know, what, uh, you know, whether they should or shouldn't, or if they do, you know, what, what would you say to that? Well, I, like I said, I'm a, I'm, I'm a believer in national service. I mean, national military service. Okay. I think everybody should be in uniform for a time. Mm-hmm. We don't have the political will to do it. And we finally, we always find, administrative and logistical excuses for why we're not going to do it. But we can't use the whole 18 year old cohort for four years and all. I mean, that those, those, those are easily overcome. But I think the most important thing is for everybody to have something in common. We don't even have voting in common. A greater percentage of people in Iraq votes, we, uh, Iraq, where you get shot if you vote hmm. than votes in the United States. We have obligations to, the no, not just this country, but the notion of this country, uh, which won't survive without everybody doing his bit. I think the easiest thing in the world to do is to go, is to go put on a uniform mm-hmm. and serve your country. You know what would happen if we had universal service? And there's a way to do it. I don't want to go into it now. I mean, there's actually a way to do it if we had the political will to do it. Mm-hmm. Everybody we saw on the street, in the bar, at the ice cream parlor, at the gas station, Everybody, everybody, we would all have something in common. We all would have worn the uniform. This wasn't a question when I was growing up in the late 40s and early 50s because everybody had served. I had friends whose fathers were missing arms and legs. I had friends who had no fathers at all because they had been killed in the war. It was unusual. Matter of fact, to find a household where somebody had not served, I do not remember one. It was just a foregone conclusion. Everybody was going to do his bit. My father, who got drafted into the Army, hated the Army, hated the bureaucracy, hated getting dragged out of college, hated getting shot at. Nobody likes getting shot at. Got out of the Army the instant he possibly could. And yet when he got to be my age, he and all of his friends who had survived, all they would talk about was how proud they were at having saved the world. And they had saved the world. I think if we had universal service and everybody did his bit, we would all have something in common. We we would have done something for this country. I encourage, uh, I sound like a recruiting poster, but but, but I think about it not because I want people to come into the Army, because I want people to come into Europe. I want people to be, to do something and do the same thing as everybody else is doing for this country. I strongly encourage people to go into uniform of some service. And I'm telling you, when people come out of there, they will have had more authority and responsibility than anybody who has not served, who is their age, or even 10 years older. Mm-hmm. People in uniform can do anything. Yeah, yeah. They're trained to. <laughs> and if you don't know how to do it, you'll figure it out. Right, right. All right. Well, um, thank you. Very much for your time, then. Thank you for speaking. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for including me. Thank you. Thank you. In the next episode, I speak with Michael Kulikovsky about the military and history 
of the late Roman Empire. Bullseye the subscribe button to catch that episode. Thank you for listening to Military History Inside Out. If you want more interviews with military historians or daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and follow me at Warscholar on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, at Chris Alvarez Warscholar on Instagram, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily fiction suggestions, including sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, sign up for my newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com and follow me on Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd on YouTube, Chris Alvarez FCN on Facebook and Twitter, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Instagram, and my podcast Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com and follow me at Spacewalks Money Talks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, Spacewalks MT on Twitter, and my podcast, Technology and Space. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you again soon.